0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review.
1: Palestinian areas in Israel are again war
0: zones as terrorism and fighting there intensifies. Germany cuts its budget, but not its military budget. The United States struggles to manufacture enough shells, and the kidnapping of hundreds of
1: thousands of children. Coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, July the 7th. I'm Philip Nice with our Philadelphia trumpet writers. In studio are Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. Josue Michels, Good morning. And joining us from our office in Jerusalem is Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Mihailo Zekic watches the Middle East for the trumpet, and we could say that right now he is a Middle East correspondent. Well, he he corresponds for, uh, he corresponds with us from England usually, but now he is corresponding from the Middle East. So Mihailo, what are the top stories affecting the Middle East right now?
2: Well, there's been quite a bit going on. Uh, earlier this week, Israel conducted its largest, uh, military operation in the West Bank in over 20 years. It, uh, lasted, uh, two days and, uh, Uh, really got uh. I mean, Israel's obviously had a lot of problems in the West Bank this year, which we've talked about on this program. But this one in particular, uh, around the West Bank city of Jenin, um, really shook uh, a lot of people on both sides of the conflict. There's been a huge number of Israeli troops took part, and uh, there's been a lot of hoo ha from the international community about it as well. The chaos in the West Bank hasn't ended. Unfortunately, after this, an Israeli man on Thursday was shot dead in the or near the West Bank Israeli settlement of Kedumin. So there's still going to be a bit of fallout from that as well. And on the other side of the Middle East, um, on Wednesday, Iran tried to kidnap or or, or seize two uh, commercial oil tankers. Iran's uh, been doing that quite a bit. This time, the uh, U.S.'s Fifth Fleet, which is based in Bahrain, Um, immediately went over to the two uh, tankers in question, which were near the Strait of Hormuz, that narrow sea gate connecting the Persian Gulf with the Indian Ocean. And Iran backed off. Times past this year, when Iran tried to seize tankers, the U.S. Navy sort of uh, dragged its feet a little bit. But now they're starting to get a bit of a backbone. We'll see where this ends up. Things are certainly escalating at least in the realm of uh, oil tanker seizures in the Persian Gulf.
1: I saw that uh, World War III was trending online, and uh, that was surrounding that Iran situation. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. But what is the main story this week affecting the Middle East?
2: Funnily enough, the main story I have technically was not this week and did not start in the Middle East. But uh, stay tuned for why I'm bringing it up. On June 28th, which was not last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before that, in Stockholm, Sweden, an Iraqi Christian refugee ha- staged a protest outside of a, a mosque where he burnt the Quran. And this was also during the um, Muslim holiday where they commemorate uh, Abraham's sac- uh, sacrifice to Ishmael, according to Muslim legend. Now, I mean, these kinds of things happen all the time in Europe. Um, somebody stages a an anti-Islam protest. Um, local Muslims riot. There's a bit of a hoo-ha in the in the international community. But in this case, um, the Muslim world, from from northern Africa all the way to Central Asia, is causing an enormous absolutely unwarranted stir about this one guy staging one protest all the way in Sweden burning the the Quran Morocco recalled its ambassador from Sweden the United Arab Emirates uh summoned the ambassador of Sweden in Abu Dhabi to have talks that was all last week um the in Iraq uh protesters actually breached the Swedish embassy there and they retreated after security forces started coming So that was all last week. And all the the hoo-ha is continuing this week as well. The United Nations Human Rights Council on a petition from Pakistan uh, announced Tuesday they're going to hold an emergency meeting on this one guy uh, doing this one thing where nobody was killed, nobody was hurt, surrounded by police that were keeping the peace and things didn't get rowdy in Stockholm itself by any means the 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 human rights council is holding an emergency meeting on that turkey meanwhile also this week took the uh uh took the time on on the same day to talk about uh sweden's nato uh application being delayed because as well it's not the first time turkey has done this and turkey has been dragging its feet on bringing sweden into nato for a long time now, but you're still seeing fallout of this thing that happened not this week, last week, one guy, peaceful, and the Muslim world is acting like Sweden just declared war on the entire Muslim community. And and there's even, like, it's it's not just the Muslim world. Bizarrely enough, uh, Pope Francis even said he felt angry and disgusted with this one refugee's actions. I, I don't know who he's trying to uh, please with that. Um, it's a bit hard to interpret his moves sometimes. But seeing the whole world blow up on this one incident that you'd think would not really cause many problems at all.
1: So we've got emergency meetings and recalled ambassadors and the breaching of embassies. Uh, but this all happened in Sweden, like you said. What, how, are, how are the Swedes responding?
2: Well, the Swedish national broadcaster SVT uh, just conducted a survey in the aftermath of this uh, uh, incident, I should say, uh, and 53% of those questions said that burning holy scriptures uh, of any religion in public should be banned. Uh, another poll, pollster did a similar survey in February, and that wasn't the case so obviously they try and um make it a little bit more general so it it sounds uh, like a little bit detached from this event it's not specifically against the quran but i mean when's the last time have you heard of, of a bible being burnt or the talmud being burnt and and the whole christian world or the whole jewish world having like a this serious boycott and recalling ambassadors and breaching embassies. That doesn't happen. It's pretty clear what this is supposed to be about. Sweden, for its part, has had problems lately with integration of immigrants from the Muslim world. Um, Cities like Stockholm and Malmo have all of a sudden become really violent due to uh, fighting amongst the uh, immigrant community. There's been terror attacks. Sweden last year voted in the most right-wing Government uh, of of its history and that's because it has a confidence and supply agreement with the far right party. So this is obviously getting on Sweden's or on Swedes uh, nerves. But when but obviously, at this point, the country and the people don't really have. They're not ready to put their foot on the ground and start pushing back in any serious way against things like this against embassy breaches over minor things like this. They're scared. And they know that if they do put their foot on the ground, all it takes is one crazy guy with a knife or uh, driving a car with a bunch of pedestrians nearby to to show what happens. And you have countries, liberal democracies like Sweden, that are getting in a very, very tough position. On the one hand, they want to keep freedom of speech going on, even if they may not personally approve of somebody offending a religious minority They still want to have freedom of speech. They still want to have a police force that doesn't tell you what you can and can't say, that doesn't uh, tell you what religion you can and can't belong to. But on the other hand, you're having problems like this, both amongst the immigrant population in Sweden itself and in the wider Muslim world from Morocco to Pakistan, as we've seen that are forcing them down this road on the trumpet daily mr richard palmer's talked about the riots in france going on and how more and more uh frenchmen are looking at the situation in france going like on the one hand we don't want to give up our our rights and our democratic ideals but on the other hand this significant chunk of our population is doing things that is making it hard for us not to go down this road to fix the problem because nothing else will and again We're still having the fallout of this event that happened last week. We'll see if this continues for another week or so, or what happens with that. Um, The dust hasn't settled yet, but it looks like, um, I mean, countries like Sweden and the rest of Europe can only take these uh, incidents for so long before the straw breaks the camel's back and somebody decides to do about it somehow. And we have a um, trends article on thetrumpet.com, which talks about... uh, Iran and Europe coming in for a clash of civilizations. Uh, I mentioned Iran there. Uh, Iran technically wasn't a, a too big of a part in all of uh, this, but uh, we go into a prophecy quite often on this show. Daniel 11, verse 40, it talks about a king of the south, which we identify as radical Islam, led by Iran, pushing at Europe, identified as a king of the north, provoking it, uh, attacking it in ways that countries normally don't treat other countries. And eventually, that's going to trigger a counter-response. It talks about uh, a whirlwind coming from Europe, in this case, even military. Now, what happened in Sweden is a very relatively minor event. Again, nobody was killed, per se. No bombs went off, at least in Stockholm. Um, But it's another symbol of the Islamic world, feeling it's bold enough to push at Europe like this, feeling it get away with things that are seemingly pretty petty. And it's only going to go so long before Europe as a whole decides to step in and do something about that
1: how one match if you will can ignite the muslim world and the middle east thank you mihailo zekic for watching the middle east from the middle east and we'll look forward to hearing more from you you can read more about the middle east and what the trumpet expects from radical islam and from europe at the trumpet.com literature go to the trumpet.com literature and order the king of the south uh, this development in Sweden is about the overall relationship between Europe and the Islamic world. Uh, our next main story is about the relationship between Europe and Asia. But before we get to that, the other main stories from Asia this week, Jeremiah Jacques.
0: Yes, it was another busy week with the Asian nations. One tragic story is that a Russian caliber cruise missile struck a residential area in Ukraine yesterday and killed five people and wounded close to 40 others. And uh, this was nowhere near the front lines of the war or any place where military targets may have been. It was all the way over on the western edge of Ukraine in the city of Lviv, just about 40 miles or so from Poland. So we can be sure that the Poles and many other Europeans were alarmed to see, uh, you know, Russian missiles killing people so close to their territories. Another story from this week is that China hit back at the Biden administration by imposing export controls on two micro materials, gallium and germanium. Gallium is a byproduct of aluminum production, germanium is a byproduct of zinc production, and these are used in just a whole range of electronic components. And China said it'll be restricting its export of these because it's still furious about the U.S., along with its allies Japan and the Netherlands, restricting China's access to semiconductor technology. So this is China basically trying to hit back at the U.S. for that. The only trouble is, with the advanced microchips and microprocessors that the biden administration blocked china from the chinese can't really source those from anywhere else but with gallium and germanium these are micro materials that other countries produce and that the u.s could produce and so a move like this from china is expected to only make the u.s become more self-sufficient to ramp up its own you know mining and recycling operations and also to start working more with other supplier nations. So this move will actually cause the U.S. some near-term inconvenience for sure. But in the long run, I think it's actually a good prod for us to become a little more weaned from the predatory Chinese Communist Party. Another story here is about China in recent days expressing continued support for the regime of Vladimir Putin, even after the Wagner mutiny that happened last month. So when that mutiny was underway, some analysts were saying this is the kind of thing that could make the Chinese view Putin as weak and make them want to you know, pull away from him. But in the time since, the Chinese have said just the opposite. They support Putin's handling of the uprising. They don't plan to reduce cooperation. And in fact, on Monday, China's defense minister said Russia and China are now working to bring their military cooperation up to a new level. So, you know, for, for those who had hoped that this might lead to a divorce between the bear and the dragon, it looks like just the opposite is actually happening. And then another story I'll briefly mention here, speaking of that mutiny, in Russia. The mutiny was led by a man named Yevgeny Prigozhin. He's the head of the Wagner Group, and he hasn't been happy with the way Russia's Ministry of Defense has been running the war on Ukraine. So that's why he seized some major military sites in Russia and killed several airmen and downed, I think it was seven Russian aircraft and marched toward Moscow. But of course, we know that Prigozhin ended up standing down when his forces were just about 125 miles from Moscow. And the word was that Putin let him go live in exile in Belarus. But the big news this week is that Prigozhin is back. He's back in Russia. He's back at his old base in St. Petersburg. And all of the weapons that Putin's forces had seized from his headquarters have apparently now been returned to him. So this is really an ongoing mystery as to why Putin allowed Prigozhin to live at all, and now even more so since Putin is apparently letting him return to everything he had. So there's still quite a lot that we don't know, but we'll continue to keep listeners updated as we learn more.
1: And give us that main story from Asia. You mentioned to me earlier that it involves Europe and Asia, European children, in fact, And Vladimir Putin.
0: Yes, that's right. The head of Russia's committee of the Federation Council on Foreign Affairs, a man named Grigory Karasin, he made a statement on Monday saying that Russia has now taken approximately 700,000 children out of Ukraine, you know, the European nation of Ukraine and relocated them to various parts of Russia. So these 700,000 children, many are orphans since their parents have been killed Uh, in russia's war against their country many others though still have at least one parent or grandparent alive but in uh in many of those cases the russians seize these children and separate them from any family members they may have and then later falsely tell them that their families are either dead or no longer want them and then the russians ship them off to various locations across siberia and other parts of russia to be assimilated into the federation so these kinds of uh reports of deportations. They've been coming out since the earliest months of the war back in 2022. And a lot of onlookers in the early days said, no, that's propaganda. That's Ukrainian propaganda, just trying to paint the Russians as, you know, being more evil than they are. But here we have an official statement from the Russian government, the head of the committee of the Federation Council on Foreign Affairs. And he's saying, no, it's true. And in fact, the number of children that we've taken is far larger than any others have even reported. And of course, the Russians say that they're doing this out of a spirit of philanthropy to protect the children from the violence that Russia has unleashed on Ukraine. But this act, it it does constitute genocide as defined by the Geneva Conventions, and it constitutes a war crime as defined by the International Criminal Court. So, for some of these children, maybe the circumstances that they're now in inside of Russia with whatever foster parents they end up with maybe they will be a little better off than the russian-authored destruction that they're being removed from in ukraine but in most cases life is only going to get bleaker for these children and and in either situation this is just a massive number of children affected by this campaign and it's just a heartbreaking
1: tragedy this 700,000 children at least i mean these are the official numbers as you say provided by russia uh 700,000, a few children here and there in the in the war zone uh meeting this this fate is still a tragedy for each of them uh it could be seen as a byproduct of of war one of its many horrible byproducts but is there is there something more to this because Russia has been in a demographic crisis, basically meaning not enough children. And now we hear that Russia is taking 700,000 children.
0: Yes, that's really, I think, at the heart of this.
1: Russia is a rapidly aging, rapidly dying society.
0: Since the start of the 60s, Russia's people have not been producing enough children to replace themselves. The average Russian woman has 1.5 children, so that's far below the 2.1 rate that's required just to keep a population from shrinking. And then you combine that abysmal birth rate with soaring rates of immigration, brain drain, and all kinds of other people trying to get out, get away from Putin, and you combine that with the rates of excess deaths, you know, extreme um, drug abuse, morbidity, alcohol morbidity, you put all that together and you see that Russia's demographics are terminal. This nation is in a death spiral. And it's a problem that Vladimir Putin has often acknowledged and tried to mitigate. In, In 2021, he told his people, quote, 146 million people for such a vast territory is insufficient. That was in 2021, and in the time since then, the population has further fallen down to 143.4 million, and that's going by Russia's heavily padded numbers. So it is a dying country, and by stealing Ukraine's children, Putin hopes that he can, you know, further mitigate this demographic crisis, and actually a compelling case can be made that this was a part of his motivation for the war on Ukraine from the beginning. So this land grab in Ukraine was always also a people grab. The goal was always to steal the children of Ukraine, Russify them, make them loyal to Putin and the Russian Empire. That was Russia analyst Jake Bro. there. And I think it's a compelling case that he makes that part of the plan, apparently from the start, was to steal children and then indoctrinate them into Russia's mindset of intractable victimhood. And it's extreme historic revisionism. And the ultimate aim is to make these Ukrainian children loyal to Putin's Russia so that they can become soldiers in Russia's future wars 10 or 20 years down the road. The notion of future wars that Russia plans to wage might sound, you know, surprising to some listeners. But Russia's recent history in places like Moldova, Chechnya, Georgia, Belarus, all of this shows that the current war on Ukraine is not a one-off nor is it the final piece of the puzzle. Putin famously called the Soviet Union's collapse the 20th century's greatest geopolitical catastrophe, and he has made clear that he aims to reverse that quote-unquote catastrophe by retaking not just Ukraine, but also the Baltics, Moldova, the Caucasus, even Central Asia, parts of Poland and Romania. In order for the Russians to feel geographically secure, they need to gain control over all of that peripheral land and they know that they can't win the future wars over that land with an army of 80 year old soldiers you know so they're stealing ukraine's children and they're russifying them and if russia is successful in this current war We should expect more and more of Ukraine's children to be forcibly moved to Russia, and then they would grow up and be used to keep on perpetuating this same dark cycle, stealing more children from other attacked
1: nations so that still more nations can later be attacked. Having a powerful nation, a war-making nation, a nuclear-armed nation like Russia, being in a demographic death spiral, that's dangerous, and it's prompting Russia to... uh, do some drastic things, as you say there. And uh, we're looking for it to do something even more drastic in the future. That's
0: right. Yeah. The Bible talks about an end-time group of Asian nations that will form a military alliance in the modern era. And Trump an editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury has written quite a lot about the various Bible passages that give details about this Eastern alliance. In his booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, he says the Bible shows that Russia will be the head nation in this alliance, and that Vladimir Putin will be the main individual wielding all the power. And Mr. Flory also calls attention to a passage that says this alliance will field an army of 200 million men. That's Revelation 9.16. So 200 million men in their army. That's far larger than any army ever assembled, and most of the troops will come from nations that ally with Russia, like China, for example. But Putin's campaign to steal children from countries such as Ukraine could also be a part of what makes this future army
1: reach its stunning size. That's the prophesied Prince of Russia, relating Bible prophecy not only to modern Russia, but to Vladimir Putin specifically. The prophesied Prince of Russia at thetrumpet.com slash literature. Coming up, modern weapons and what they can do or can't do in Ukraine, in Germany, and in the United States. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Our next two main stories involve weapons technology. The first is from Josue Michels, who is covering the Europe region for us this week. Josue, before we get to that, give us a rundown of the runners-up in terms of important European news.
3: Right, we talked last week a bit about the massive riots in France, and I just want to highlight here that as the riots die down, the battle in France to deal with migration is just really starting. The far-right leader, Marine Le Pen, is seeking to benefit from it and is uppering her rhetoric, so she's really pushing the people in France to see how big of a problem the Muslim population in France is, and there is a lot of problems that that population is causing like those riots so she really wants to harness on that and French President Emmanuel Macron who is very close to European lead which is more left and he is really changing more and more to address those same issues and pushing himself towards the wider spectrum of the parliament. There was also a major debate in the German parliament about it and Germany's far-right party has taken the opportunity to warn against Muslim parallel societies in Germany And that caused a major debate in the German parliament. Now, as I said, mass immigration is a massive problem in France, Germany and other European countries. But I also want to highlight here that Germany's far right has been financed in some ways directly and in some ways indirectly from a Nazi billionaire family. That's a family that worked closely with the Nazis in World War II, benefited from the crimes there, got their wealth from that. Atrocities, and now they are financing with that money a far-right party. So you can see that there is a problem here, but you can also see that the far-right has their own agenda. They have to do what their financiers want them to do. And in midst of all of those problems rising in Europe, I also want to highlight that there is a new podcast series by a former defense minister, Karl Theodor Gutenberg. and he talks with a left-wing conversation partner, Georg Gysi. He is quite far left. He worked in the GDR before and he is basically a communist Marxist and he professes to be so. But that podcast is rising very fast and is already the most popular podcast on Apple podcasts, for example. And we are watching Gutenberg especially very closely because we are expecting crisis to increase and Europe to call for a strong leader. We expect Gutenberg to be that leader. And so it's interesting that he is rising to address many of those issues in his podcast.
1: Not sure if Josue is advertising Carl Theodor Zü Gutenberg's podcast on the Trumpet Hour podcast, but Josue, what is the biggest development from Europe? It has to do with an important component of military power.
3: That's right. So there are lots of military news right now in Germany. So I just want to highlight a little bit of that on today's show. Just this week, Germany announced a new budget draft for next year and they are cutting basically their budget down because of economic trouble but there's one thing they're increasing and that is their military budget so they're increasing their military budget for 2024 in addition they have like a special fund that they can supplement their military budget with so they want to reach two percent of their gdp next year on military so that's a major development and now let's see what they are spending it on This week, on the same day, actually, the Germany's Parliamentary Budget Committee approved the purchase of SHIKU helicopters, 60 of them, and they are from the American manufacturer Boeing, and that will cost them $8 some $8 billion. So that's a major purchase, and they will be stationed in the south of Berlin, along with another major purchase, the Arrow 3 missile defense system that they are buying from Israel. So those are some very advanced technologies, the, adve- the most advanced in the world. And Germany is buying those te- that technology from military industries that are really the top in the world. And of course, Germany also has its own military industry. They have been investing in last years in the A400M, which is a military airlift transporter. So they transport tanks, they transport troops. And they really go hand in hand with that new helicopter they are buying from America. And that's something remarkable I want to briefly just discuss here. Europe didn't have airlift capacity. So that means that when they had foreign missions, they relied on a ride from the United States, so to say. They had to transport their troops, they had to transport their tanks and things like that. So that was really... A dependence that Europe had to overcome and many have said that Europe cannot be a superpower unless they have that capacity. So, and that's changing now. They are becoming an effective military power that can conduct independent military foreign missions.
1: Those Boeing CH-47s are those large, long choppers, twin rotors, one in the front, one in the back, and they even sound heavy. You hear a pair of Chinooks coming, and you're like, that's a heavy helicopter. Germany wants 60 of them, as you're telling us. Again, to fill a major gap in military capacity that they and other European nations have previously had to rely on the United States for, Uh, where do you see this going in, in the future in the larger sense?
3: Yeah, as I said before, there are many crises hitting Europe right now. We have the one Ukraine that's led by Russia and we have an immigration problem that also needs to be addressed in the Middle East. So there are many battles ahead and I said before that Gutenberg is rising. He was a former defense minister. He was the first man who used the, the word war in a foreign mission for Germany, so he is really a military man and we are looking for him. His podcast, by the way, is in German, so no risk that we are losing here trumpet our listeners. But he is the man to watch in this regard, as Mr. Fleury has pointed out many times. And there's specific prophecy that's also very much related to what we are seeing. I have mentioned that the crises in Europe are increasing, but there's also something else that's increasing that God is most concerned about. And that is the sin of his people, Israel. That's primarily America and Britain today, as the late educator Herbert W. Armstrong explains in the United States and Britain in prophecy. And there's another related prophecy to that in Isaiah 10, where God is saying that he is raising the ancient Assyrians to deal with the sins of his people. And he calls Assyria... The rod of his anger, the staff of his indignation, and Assyria, as Mr. Armstrong explains in that same book, is modern Germany. So as we see the sins increasing in modern Israel, and we see the crises increasing in Europe, we are also seeing Germany rising militarily, and that's by no means any coincidence. God is actually orchestrating these events. And to learn more, I would recommend Mr. Fluey's article, Ukraine is Hastening a New Germany, where he goes through the prophecies and he shows that Germany is changing through these crises surrounding them. But he also shows why Germany is changing.
1: That's Ukraine is Hastening a New Germany on the Trumpet.com. Uh, as well as The United States and Britain in Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong. So Germany still with a much smaller military than other nations, uh, than the United States, of course, but with the ambitions and the capabilities, for sure, to build it up uh, significantly. Uh, Meanwhile, the United States has built and fielded the most powerful military in world history over the past 80 years or so, but it is not all powerful. Andrew Miller, tell us about that a little bit. But first, tell us about the main developments from the Anglo-America region.
4: In the Anglo-American region this week, banks in the United Kingdom shut down accounts of conservative figures. A Louisiana federal judge blocked the Biden administration officials from contacting social media companies about censorship. And Senator James David Vance warned that drug cartels may
1: soon be more powerful than the state of Mexico itself. Now, let's get to that main story that has to do with American armaments. yeah, this is actually a really
4: big story uh, important for national security that's not getting a ton of news coverage, but the fact that the United States it still has the most powerful military in the world, uh, but it doesn't have the industrial might it once had, uh, and that is going to catch up with it and as a fact, it is already catching up with it as they're finding out that we don't actually have the machinery to generate enough bullets, shells, and other ammunitions uh, to keep up with the, uh, the rate at which Ukrainian soldiers are firing them. Uh, there was one official um, I saw this week was saying that actually uh, the Ukrainians are shooting bullets 12 times faster than the American can produce them. And bringing it to the point that they're actually getting through a big deficit. I think they said they're about we're about thirteen years behind on our ammunition goals because uh just with one type of uh, shell, the one fifty five uh, mortar, we've sent over a million rounds to uh, Ukraine, but we can and only make less than three thousand of them a month. So we're dipping deep into back reserves, and. Um, there's an article in Nathaniel Blake at the Federalist, where he's actually going out and predicting a Russian victory in eastern Ukraine um, after a very long out war of attrition, saying that like right now they said the Ukrainians they're <laughs> they're killing the Russians faster than the Russians kill them, but they said, but they have less men than Russia and the NATO countries are falling behind on their ability to keep keep them up with ammunition he said so after enough years they said uh putin might rule over rubble but uh he'll rule over (laughs) he'll rule over it when they run out of ammo um america is trying to ramp up its ammunition production and finding out that its biggest problem right now is not raw materials we have plenty of raw materials to make uh, as many bullets as we want we just don't have the machinery." Um, and the machinery. I mean, it takes time to <laughs> it takes time to build or takes time to buy. They said that, like I said, we're well, now we're making less than three thousand shells per month. We want to get that up to forty thousand shells per month, but it could take two or three years um, before we're back up to that capacity, which is a capacity we used to have um, in World War Two. I mean, you can definitely argue that it was American. Industrial might even more so than American military might that won the war. You you definitely hear stories about <laughs> German pilots just shooting American planes like flies out of the sky because you can make an argument that the, the Luftwaffe, they had better planes, better pilots, better military. Uh, but as fast as they could shoot them down, we built
1: 10 more. Yeah, they, uh, sunk, they sunk a ton of our ships, but we just kept building entire ships <laughs> and floating them. And so that's a, that's a big fall from grace to be
4: <laughs> going from able to like build entire ships to fight a world war to now you've got, I don't know, something like 300,000 Russian soldiers invading a mid sized country in Eastern Europe. And, um, and we're, we're struggling to <laughs> not even provide the men and the equipment, but, but just even the bullets, uh, even the bullets to keep up, um, conflict like this, which is definitely bad news if there's – like, I mean, prophecy talks about uh, – you go through Hosea 5 and other scriptures uh, about a time when it'll be America under invasion. Uh, actually, that Hosea 5 scripture uh, even strongly infers that America, Britain, and uh, the little nation in the Middle East called Israel will fall together in a month. Uh, and so that's not a it's not a Ukraine's a long drawn out war. You know, the prophesied fall of America will happen pretty quickly. And you can imagine that it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around a, America, a military size collapsing in a month. But this bullet thing does definitely highlight <laughs> uh, definitely highlight some of the strategic vulnerabilities is that you can have the most advanced weapon systems in the world. But if you don't have the economic might and the industrial capacity uh to keep that <laughs> to keep that charged as much as it needs to be uh you um you really leave yourself vulnerable for surprise attacks like I said if there was a nation able to attack America now and we're 13 years behind on on bullets that's uh that's a huge strategic vulnerability that
1: this Ukraine crisis is casting a spotlight on so the United States is running out of munitions and the United States is not even technically at war We've just come through the 4th of July, and this reminds me of the revolution, and you'll remember how the founders, having had to get all their bullets and firearms from the French or the Spanish, or picking them up from the battlefield from the British, uh, directed that America always have its own defense manufacturing capacity, a capacity that, as you said, probably peaked around World War II. Uh, That was 80 years ago, and that capacity no longer exists. You've recommended an article at thetrumpet.com on this, The Death of American Manufacturing. Stay with us. In our final segment, we turn back to the clashes between Israel and the Palestinians in the explosive Middle East. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour and to our final segment this hour as we complete the week in review. We want to discuss those major clashes and fighting in the state of Israel. In our last Trumpet Hour week in review segment, our panel of trumpet writers discusses one especially important news event. Mihailo Zekic, introduce what's been happening in Israel. Give us the who, what, when, and where.
2: Israel just conducted its largest military operation in the West Bank in over two decades, uh, between July 3rd and 4th, I mean, obviously, going after terrorists and keeping one's country safe is uh, pretty good. But the size and scale and just the amount of devastation that uh, this clash, this two-day clash brought on, is pretty horrific. We mentioned it earlier, as you mentioned, and here are some of the details. Over a 1,000 Israeli troops uh, took place in uh in this raid. Um, it was. According to Palestinian sources. Uh, 13 Palestinians were killed. And dozens more were wounded. The attacks went. Uh, after specifically. Uh, a terror group called Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Or abbreviated P.I.J. Which is. Probably the. Group in. Or the terror group within. The, the Palestinian territories. Most under Iran's thumb. Um, it split off in the Muslim Brotherhood decades ago, and it's uh, famously caused a, uh, a brief uh, war with Israel last year with rockets coming out of Gaza. Um, like if you look at pictures of what uh, Jenin, which is a city where it took place, looks like, it, uh, it, I guess it is one, but it looks like a war zone, like just blasted out buildings and uh, singed uh, surroundings everywhere. Um, the, again, it's a good thing that Israel is going after uh, terrorists like this, but the size and scale, and Janine, well, for one part, it's known as a hotbed of uh, Islamic extremism for a long time, but also there's been nonstop fighting in there. well, I guess sh- I should say on and off, but raid after raid, attack after attack uh, since the start of this year at least, um, and it's culminated in this large raid, and as I mentioned in the earlier segment, Things aren't, haven't settled down per se. There was, uh, on Thursday, uh, somebody shot near an Israeli settlement. Uh, Gaza, for its part, afterwards started sending rockets in response um, after, the, after the skirmish took place. So it looks like the terror situation and just the general attitude between Israelis and Palestinians is getting more and more about as boiling as it could be.
1: So you're there in the same country where this is happening. Uh, is this something that you see on the, on the streets in some some way? Are people reacting to this, or or what's the what's the situation on the ground in your part of Israel?
2: Well, funnily enough, the answer is I don't see much. Um, I'm sitting right now in our office in Jerusalem um, as this was going on, and as a lot of other stuff was going on. You could walk through the streets. The, and you wouldn't really be able to tell anything was happening. I found out about this through the, all the the news on the internet, like everybody else in every other part of the world. Jenin is only about two hour a two hour drive north from Jerusalem, and and I mean, granted, like Jerusalem obviously has well, for one thing, it's uh, not in the West Bank, so there's a lot of better security measures there. And also, I mean, it, it's not like there's hundreds of thousands of impoverished Palestinians with nothing better to do than to um, buy bombs and start attacking people. Uh, but at the same time, I, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the the holy site in Islam that the Arabs always riot about, I go there for work all the time. And I don't really, well, I certainly didn't see anything on July 4th, uh, 4th or fifth to suggest that like people are rising up in tensions i was in the old city on on tuesday doing some business and nothing happened um that's not to say everywhere in israel's safe i mean in response to this there was a small terror attack in tel aviv uh that um, unfortunately killed uh, a handful of people but in general you could just walk outside and i mean you see you know Jews and Arabs intermingling in the parks and the markets or whatever, it's uh, minding their own business. If you ask them what their political opinions are, I'm sure you'd get a firestorm from that. But in general, things are chugging along as if nothing's happening. It's a really eerie feeling as if it's not in the same country, but it is in the same country. And I think for, obviously, Israelis are a bit used to their security situation, but Perhaps that gives them a bit of a false sense of security with just like the dichotomy.
1: A calm uh, during and before the storm, it seems. So, Jeremiah Jacques, you've written on this uh, development. Can you give us a bit of the the larger context of what's happening in Janine? Sure. Yes. The context uh, really depends on where you want to start. You could go
0: back to Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land, you know, 3000 years ago. Maybe you could go back just to the birth of Islam in a cave in Mecca in uh, the year 610, I think it was, or to the crusades a 1000 years ago, those wars for control over Jerusalem. You could start in 1917 when the British government issued the Balfour Declaration announcing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jews in the Holy Land, or maybe to 1948 when the Jewish nation of Israel declared its independence, and that's what sparked the big Arab-Israeli war. Um, you know, to, to really understand the context, you have to realize that there have been decades, even centuries and millennia of bloodshed. The Jewish people believe they should be allowed to have a country and control its territory and run it according to you know the the laws of their elected leaders but the palestinians and their sponsors such as iran and many arab peoples in the region um, they think the jewish people have no right to live there they say the jewish claims are illegitimate that they're a blight on the earth and many actually say openly especially in iran that israel should be erased from the map so it is just a, a hotbed of tension, as, as Mahalo said there, a hotbed that flares up periodically. Just a, It's a powder keg region. But we had the first intifada back in the 80s and 90s. That was driven by the Palestinians' anger over Israel's military, occupying the West Bank and also the Gaza Strip. And almost 2,000 Palestinians died in that violence, and around 200 were killed on the Israeli side. Then the second intifada in the early 2000s was even worse. About a 1,000 Israelis were killed by Palestinians and more than 3,000 Palestinians were killed. And then you had the first, second, and third Gaza wars. Thousands more were killed in those, almost all on the Palestinian side. So when you consider just how explosive many of those previous wars have been, the current violence with just 12 Palestinians dying, and I think it was one IDF soldier. Um, it doesn't seem as devastating, but with these kinds of conflicts, it's impossible to know if or when they'll explode into something much larger
1: with little or no warning. So there is a lot for us to keep an eye on there. So several nations over over that history that you mentioned have involved themselves in trying to control or at least mollify the situation in the Middle East. In the most recent century, of course, it's been the United States. Uh It has been the one with its military and its diplomacy to burden itself in this way. What has been the U.S. reaction to this latest flare-up?
4: The U.S. seems to have given their uh, tacit but limited response to uh, or approval to the raid. Uh, Israel did inform the U.S. before they invaded. So, I mean, America knew this was going to happen. Uh, They didn't do anything to... Stop it. Uh, they're not necessarily out there cheerleading <laughs> Israeli troops, but they've um, all our defense alliance is still intact, and we haven't condemned it in, in any way, which actually surprised me a little bit. It shouldn't. I mean, it seems like, actually, if anything, <laughs> you, you, the U.S. probably should be more supportive of this sort of thing. Uh, stereotypically, <laughs> it's normally Republican administrations that are very pro jewish and democratic uh, administrations which are more pro uh palestinian uh especially the obama administration and joe biden's terms basically the third term of barack obama uh just hours before he left uh office obama uh quietly wired about 221 million dollars to the palestinians and then a little bit before that (laughs) Uh, Refused to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and State Department documents. Long history of the Obama administration supporting the Palestinians against the Jewish state, um, which really plays into um, uh, the prophecies we've highlighted so many in this program about Antiochus. Uh, He he even refusing to recognize Jerusalem like during the Hanukkah holiday, uh, which is the celebration of their jewish liberation from the original antiochus uh so <laughs> i guess in this case the fact that even the biden administration's not protesting this openly uh is probably just really an indication of how bad some of the terrorist problems there that they can't be seen to uh seem to do anything that in the eyes of the american people that would make it look like they're overtly supporting terrorism
3: yeah and europe has a very similar stance on this latest development. And historically, or in the last few years at least, it has a very similar stance on, like Obama and the current Biden administration. Most of them are seeing Israel as the problem, and they want to pose any Israeli questions that goes from Europe's media to think tanks to most of the politicians. And I just want to give a few examples here of how they are pushing for that. For example, the European Parliament's foreign affairs community urged the International Criminal Court to investigate Israeli war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in what they call the occupied Palestinian territories, which is quite an interesting accusation as we see war crimes on a large scale committed in Ukraine by Russia and we see other war crimes in China and, or crimes against humanity that is in China, and we see that even some of the war crimes that Germany committed haven't been fully dealt with, and we know that crimes against humanity were committed by Europeans against Jews. So that's a really interesting plot twist here, but that's not all in February. So that was from last June, but in February, France, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom sided with the United States in condemning Israeli settlements in the West Bank. So their stance is really that the crisis here has been caused by Israel, and we need to change that. And I have a quote here from a prestigious European think tank, that's the European Council on Foreign Relations, and they wrote the following. Israeli commanders have said the army will return to Jenin. Europeans should oppose this. Israel's operations have created a political and humanitarian crisis and are destabilizing the West Bank, where the march towards a new infarada uprising continues unabated. They are also a counterproductive way of dealing with armed groups. So they are recognizing yes there are some terrorist problems, but the way Israel is handling this is totally wrong and escalating the crisis it's the worst thing they can do right now. So here are their recommendations. Europeans should exert greater pressure on Israel so that's pressure on Israel not on the Palestinians to rein in settlement building. Another point they mention as Europeans seek global support in confronting Russian question they should view opposing Israeli violations of international law as an important means of demonstrating commitment to their self-declared values. So they're saying what Israel is doing is pretty much the same than what Russia is doing. And then they also talk about how to influence the Palestinians as they recognize there are some problems there. And they say Europe can use its financial aid to basically influence the Palestinian government. But at the same time, though, the German government did come out and say that we support Israel's right to self-defense. So if there's a problem and there are terrorist strikes, we support that Israel can defend themselves against that. So you really see a double side here. On one hand, they say Israel is a problem. On the other side, they say we have caused a lot of problems to Israel, to the Jews mainly in the past, and we are supporting that Israel can have their own country now. And actually, both of these scenarios, both of these aspects can be seen in Bible prophecy. For example, Daniel 11, verse 40 to 45. We addressed that in our booklet, The King of the South by Gerald Flouy, highlights that Europe actually, like in crusades before, will take responsibility in the Middle East. They actually want to control that area. And Dirt says that they will confront radical Islam, which is israel's main enemy in the region they move in as a peacekeeping force so they see their responsibility as a peacekeeper but then it turns they see israel as the problem and they say we are going to control that region and will actually cause far greater bloodshed than we have seen in any recent conflict in the middle east so both of these aspects the betrayal that's coming the a word support of saying yes we defend israel and then the sudden betrayal that's all seen in bible prophecy in our booklet the king of the south
1: so that was the king of the south at the trumpet.com the king of the south we mentioned that earlier as well as the article iran has israel surrounded iran has israel surrounded that's all the time we have for trumpet hour this week Email us your thoughts on the program, as always, at lettersofthetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Josue Michels, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. Thank you to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. And thank you for listening to The Week in Review. And we look forward to being back with you next week on Trumpet Hour.